Live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about Nobody Cares About Neptune, and now it's mad, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in the entire universe, because that's what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, so you can leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com any day of the week, any time of day, and we will answer your question. Who's we? Because Greg's not answering questions, that's for sure. Just me. I am answering questions in every show, and in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about why I like to travel, but first, the news. Hello, space fans. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio, where we talk about all things in this beautiful universe of ours. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Studio A of WCB Radio Columbus. So leave a voicemail on our website. That's spaceradioshow.com. Com, light it up, get those calls in, and I will answer them. You can also follow along on our live streams with our space cadets watching live, tuning in from Virginia Beach, Virginia, UK, London, Gary, Indiana, Ashburton, New Zealand, Morgantown, West Virginia, Tucson, Arizona, Edmonton, California, Santa Cruz, California, and more around the world. That's right there watching live. For the links for YouTube and Twitch, go to spaceradioshow.com. Hey, it's the same website. How handy is that? Seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes of show material. Top's not even that. And get those calls in. Before I start taking calls, though, I wanted to share some cool news that bubbled up in the astronomy world this week. And something that caught my eye was the storms of Neptune. Neptune. Why doesn't anybody care about Neptune? We've had missions to Jupiter. We have a mission to Jupiter right now, the Juno probe. Before that, we had Galileo. And we had the Cassini mission to Saturn. That was in orbit for like two decades. But then Neptune and Uranus just hanging out on the far edge of the solar system? Uh, really? Really? Is that all we're going to... Like, the last time we had a mission visiting one of these planets was Voyager 2 in the 1980s. There are people that can vote that have never experienced live a close-up view of one of these worlds. And these are major, major components of our solar system. Like Neptune and Uranus, they're big, they're interesting, they have cool colors. Like just, what's going on? Why haven't we sent a mission? Here's a reason why. It's... Probably a good idea to send a mission out into the outermost edges of our solar system is that there are these storms that appear on Neptune. And there, you know, of course, Jupiter has the Great Red Spot, which everybody talks about, hogs all the attention. We've known about it for hundreds of years, blah, 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 blah. Okay, the other gas giants and ice giants get some storms too, all right? And in the case of Neptune, it gets black spots. These black storms are the size of planet Earth which is large. Now, they don't last hundreds of years. They'll last years to decades. For example, Voyager 2, when it flew by in 1989, captured one of these storms in the Northern Hemisphere. Then when Hubble came along in 1994, the Hubble Space Telescope, and took a picture, 
the storm was gone. So we'd known in just those few years, this storm, this, I mean, imagine this, a storm the size of the planet Earth, bubbling up from the depths of Neptune, rising to the surface, swirling for a few years, and then vanishing. Like, what kind of physics are going on that can create and destroy storms the size of the planet Earth over the course of only years? That is ridiculous. And as far as we can tell, these storms really do come up from underneath, that they're born in deep, deep cells way below what we can see, and they rise to the surface and then they slink back down. So the nature of these storms is telling us something about the interior of the planet which means if you can study this of how these storms rise and sink and form and disappear, you might learn something about the other giant planets because they're kind of sort of related. But at the very least, you're going to learn about Neptune. And we know hardly anything about Neptune. All we have are the Hubble Space Telescope images, which... The reason this is in the news is Hubble recently captured a brand new giant storm that wasn't there last year, and now it's here. And we're trying to figure out how big it is, how long it'll last, how bad it is, where it came from, where, where is it going. And we're trying to understand the interior of the planet because the interior of the planet tells us about the formation of the solar system itself. If you know what's inside something, you know how it was made, and we don't know what's inside Neptune. I don't know. Greg doesn't know. He's shaking his head. No, nobody knows what's inside Neptune. So maybe we should develop a space probe to figure it out. That's the lace and grace when it came to space, but it's time to have a conversation. We've got a voicemail. So Greg, are you ready to play the tape? Thumbs up. Hello, I'm Declan. And I would like to know if the Earth can go to the speed of light. Ooh, very good question, Declan. Very curious question. You're wondering if the Earth can go the speed of light. So unfortunately, there are not a lot of things in our universe can go the speed of light. Lots of things can go really, really fast. Don't get me wrong, but not a lot of things can go the speed of light. In order to go the speed of light, you'd have to have no mass, which means you have to weigh nothing at all. And there isn't a lot of stuff in the universe that weighs nothing at all. So one of the things that weighs nothing at all is light. How convenient is that? Light goes at the speed of light. How handy. Good naming system there, physicists. And other massless particles, other particles with no mass, with no weight, they are capable of going at the speed of light. But if you have just a tiny bit of mass, even just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit, you will never, ever, ever, ever reach the speed of light. And that's because the reason for this is because energy and mass are the same. Energy and mass are the same. Like if you think of, if you think of, uh, running, like you have kinetic energy, this is the energy of you running, that's mass. That's the exact same thing as weight. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. E equals mc squared. This is Einstein's famous equation. It's telling us that energy is mass and mass is energy. So if you're trying to go faster, if you're running fast, you actually weigh more than if you're standing still. 
And the faster and faster you go, the more and more and more you weigh, the more massive you are. And as you try to get to the speed of light, the heavier and heavier and heavier you get. So you can get to like 99% the speed of light, 99.9999% the speed of light, 999 9999999999% the speed of light. You can keep going closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, but you will never, ever get to the speed of light because the closer you get, the heavier you are and the harder it is to push to get you there. And so you will never quite reach it. And so that is, that's a shame. So nothing that weighs anything can reach the speed of light. That includes you. I'm assuming you have mass that you're not made of light. That includes me. That includes the planet Earth. Unfortunately, the planet Earth cannot go the speed of light. That said, the planet Earth is booking. The planet Earth is going really, really fast, and so are you along with it. The planet Earth is traveling at tens of thousands of miles per hour in orbit around the sun. Our whole solar system is is in orbit around the center of the Milky Way galaxy at like 200 kilometers per second, which is fast. Our entire Milky Way galaxy is blasting through space. When you add everything up, it's something like 600 kilometers per second that we are moving through space. So every second, 600 kilometers, 600 kilometers, 600 kilometers. That's pretty fast. Not the speed of light, though. Not even close. But hey, we'll take what we can get because we're a giant planet. We got another question here lined up on voicemail from Penelope. Greg, play the tape. Dr. Paul, how does something come from nothing? How does something come from nothing? Well, I'm going to answer this two ways. I'm going to answer this two ways. One way is that energy is mass. So if I have a box full of energy, I can transform that energy into a mass. If I have a completely empty box, you know, particles, massive particles can just bubble up inside the box and it's totally cool. So in that sense, something can come from nothing. If you have an empty box, it turns out you can generate some particles out of it. And that's, that's not really an issue in physics. But usually this question comes up when we're talking about the very early universe and we're talking about the Big Bang and we're talking about the origins of the universe. Now, there are attempts. So, so the basic answer is we don't know where the universe, quote unquote, came from. And we don't even know if that question makes sense physically because in the incredibly early universe, like when the universe was very, 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 very tiny, like say, you know, 10 to the minus 40 meters across, which is tiny, all of our physics breaks down. All of our physics break down, including our understanding of space and time. We have no conception of space or time below a certain threshold. These concepts that we've constructed to understand our universe simply don't work when the universe is very, very small. I am Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. This show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can keep this show going. That's right. It's all up to you and Greg, both of you working together. Support for 90.5 WCBE and Space Radio comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. 
Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. I'm in the middle of answering Penelope's question. And Penelope asked, can something come from nothing? Or how can something come from nothing? And I was talking about the very early universe. And the answer is we don't know where the universe came from, or even if that question makes sense. Because below certain scales, when the universe is so, so, so tiny, we simply don't know. We don't know. Like, our physics don't really make sense. And so to say that the universe came from something or came from nothing, then we don't know. We don't have an answer to that. And we don't have an answer to that in physics or in science. You might have an answer to that in philosophy. You might have an answer to that in religion. And that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you. But I'm going to say in physics, in science, we do not have an answer to that question. And you know what? Science isn't going to have an answer to every question. That's all right. So that's the best answer I can give you, Penelope, is that we just don't. No, and that's okay. Now, we do have some Space Cadet questions lined up. On YouTube, we've got Root asking, are blazars and quasars the same thing? And the answer is, yeah, kind of, sort of, but also not. Um, These objects, these objects were first discovered in the radio. When we started building radio telescopes, we saw these loud radio sources dotting the skies that were small and kind of point-like and very objecty. So they were called quasi-stellar objects because they were kind of sort of like stars, but they weren't. And so their quasi-stellar object is abbreviated quasars. And then after we did a few more observations, we found some really intense ones, like some ones that were blazingly bright, and but they were also quasars, so we called those blazars. And then decades later, we figured out what's going on. What's going on? is that these both belong to the same kind of thing called an active galactic nucleus, where you have a giant black hole at the center of a galaxy, and that black hole is feeding, material is falling into that black hole, and as that material falls in, it heats up, it crams together, it gets intensely bright, and it it shines brighter than a galaxy, actually brighter than like a million galaxies. These are intensely bright things. And they can spin off jets, uh, these electric and magnetic fields that happen or that rise near the black hole, can steer material around the black hole and send it shooting off into jets that are like tens of thousands of light years long. These are some of the most energetic events in the universe. They are by far the most powerful engines in the universe. They will rise for like a million or 10 million years and they will like I said they'll be brighter than like a million galaxies so they are bright what's happening between a quasar and a blazar is our point of view they're the exact same thing but we just have a different viewpoint because these jets that are generated point in in two very specific directions they point up and they point down So sometimes we can see these systems, these active galactic nuclei from the side, and they have a certain brightness. 
And sometimes the jet is pointed straight at us like a giant searchlight blazing, blasting into our faces. And so it appears brighter, has a few different characteristics, even though it's the exact same physical system, it's just a chance alignment with us of whether you get called a quasar or a blazar. Now there are even other kinds like Seifert galaxies and on and, and on and on and on. The general class is active galactic nucleus and quasars were simply the first kind to be spotted and then blazars were like the second or third kind to be spotted. And now this is called, I believe it's called like the unified model where we understand that this is the same physical system, the same scenario every time, just different arrangements. Now we have another question around the court. We actually have tons of space cadet questions, which I love. Pure Ostension on YouTube is asking Neptune versus Uranus, which one wins. Now, this is a very, very tough question because both Neptune and Uranus have some very cool things going for it, but I'm going to, and these are the two ice giants of the solar system. So they are not gas giants. The solar system only has two gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. And Uranus and Neptune are classified differently because they have different formation histories. They're not made of primarily hydrogen and helium. They're made of other things, mostly. And so they get called ice giants. And so of the two ice giants, Neptune versus Uranus, which one wins? I'm going to have to give the edge to Uranus. I think Uranus is better because it's tilted on its side. And that's just awesome. No, it's serious. This, this entire planet, this entire planet of Uranus, something happened to it billions of years ago to this gas giant planet that got it knocked over so that its north pole is facing the plane of our solar system. And so it goes around and around and it's just messed up in, in its entire ring system is oriented perpendicular to the rest of the solar system. Its entire moon system is oriented perpendicular. Like the whole thing, the whole thing is on its side, which is just crazy, which is just awesome. I, I mean, Neptune has a lot of things going for it. It has some cool moons. It's a very nice, lovely blue color, has some storms. Uranus, though, I mean, it's farther out. Uh, the moons aren't as cool, but it's just, it's knocked on its side. And it's really, really hard to beat that, a tilted ice giant planet. How is Neptune going to win? And that's why I'm very confident in saying that nobody cares about Neptune, that if we were to send a mission to the outer planets, these ice giant planets, we'd probably head for Uranus because it's just just a tad more interesting than Neptune. And I'm very sorry to say that Neptune, but, but that's just life. I mean, that's just how it is. One last question before we go from the space cadets from Malwande Mabanti on YouTube asking, are magnetars real? Yeah, I mean, you get into the jargon zone of astronomy and physics and you've got quasars and blazars and magnetars and it's like all these, all these things 
And some of them sound legit and real, and some of them sound really, really weird and probably just made up. And in this case, in the case of Magnetars, Magnetars are real. It is a real name for a real thing in the real universe. Magnetars are pulsars, which, I know, another jargon word, which are neutron stars, which is another jargon word. All you need to know about magnetars is that they are the leftover cores of giant stars that are spinning rapidly faster than a kitchen blender, by the way, and have insanely strong magnetic fields. In fact, they have the strongest magnetic fields in the universe. We're talking mm, like a literally a trillion times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. These are magnetic fields strong enough to dissolve you from a thousand miles away. These are magnetic fields strong enough to distort the shape of atoms from a thousand miles away. These are the most powerful magnetic fields in the universe, and hence the name Magnetar. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift. What I wanted to talk about is, yes, I have another AstroTour lined up. In October, we're going to Hawaii, and I want you to come to Hawaii with me. I'm leading the trip. It's three islands, and it's stargazing. We're going to Mauna Kea, and during the day, we're doing, like, volcanoes and food and having a great time in national parks. And then at night, we're doing stargazing. What a trip. It's in October. You need to sign up now. Go to astrotours.co. But I want to talk about why I do astrotours. Uh, because it's a lot of time investment. It's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. And it's for me, it's a really, really special way to connect people to science because there's nothing like experiencing science. There's nothing like experiencing an incredibly dark sky. There's nothing like experiencing aurora borealis. There's nothing like experiencing an active volcano where we live in a beautiful world, in a beautiful universe, and you can actually experience it. You can get up close to it. You can see it with your own eyes and we can talk about it. And so you get this multi-level experience of seeing things, appreciating things, and understanding things through the lens of science, which the lens of science is a very, very powerful way to understand the way that nature works. And so you can see, it's like, People often say like, oh, oh, you know, science takes away the beauty of the rainbow. No, no, no. Science enhances the beauty of the rainbow where you can see a rainbow and you can appreciate that. Yes, that's a very, very pretty rainbow and I can sit here and enjoy it all day long. But if I understand the physics and the optics going on to create a rainbow, that's another level of appreciation. That's another level of beauty. That's depth to appreciation, not shallowness. It doesn't take away, it enhances, it grows. And so I do astro tours because there's something about sitting underneath a very, very dark sky and talking about that sky together in that shared experience, in that environment. There's something magical about it. There's something special about it. There's something very powerful about it, which is why I enjoy it. And as you know, I love sharing what I know and what I love about the universe with you. And that's why I created Astro Tour. So our next one is to Hawaii. It's in October, but you need to sign up like right now because the registration deadline is coming up very, very soon by the end of April. So you need to sign up now. Just get your registration. And that's all it takes. That's astrotours.co. Astrotours.co. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter. And this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. 
Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, Dan Michalka for being awesome, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio for making this show possible. We record every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern. You can leave a voicemail anytime, though. And you can watch the live streams with the other space cadets on YouTube and Twitch. Go to spaceradioshow.com for all those links. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing and transmission. <laughs>